Mark Hamilton, who did not elect him. I understand he was born in Arkansas, but for somehow or another, he ended up there in Yankee land, ministering up in Connecticut for several years, and then saw the light and moved back to Texas to come to Abilene. Uh, well, not entirely. You're going to at the end find out he didn't see the light entirely, unfortunately. But uh, he came back to Abilene. He teaches biblical Hebrew and Old Testament at the university and uh, served several years as an uh, elder there at the, just a minute, you know, that's University Church, Church of Christ. He's been a visiting professor at Pepperdine University, Lipscomb University, universities in New Zealand, Ghana, Russia, Croatia, Israel, and South Korea. A well-traveled individual. He's lectured and preached in many, year, in many parts of the United States and other countries. In addition to his work at Abilene Christian uh, and serving at the university and serving at, uh, as an elder there at the University Church of Christ, he preaches and teaches in churches in many locales and has graciously come to be with us today. He's the article of over 200 articles, chapters in books and reviews. He has also written and edited 12 books and is currently working on more, several more, it says. So I'm going, how do you write 12 and just keep it up? How do you do this? Um, he's currently working on commentaries on Genesis and First and Second Samuel. He and his wife, are, uh, Sam Jung, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, from South Korea, have two adult children that they dearly love. Uh, his, one of his sons is here with us today. Now, here's the problem, Mark, fan of the Red Sox. How long have you been in Abilene? <laughs> and then loves a tabletop game that I can't even pronounce. So, or, or I think I could pronounce it, but just in case, I'm not going to pronounce it. So, uh, Mark, come on up. I appreciate it. Um, go Rangers. Good, mo good morning, everybody. I don't hate the Rangers. I think they're, they're fine. They're, they're, they're right Ted Williams was the... I just wish we could get him on TV. That would be nice. They have a connection. The great Ted Williams worked for both, right? Well, now that we've gotten the important stuff out of the way with the baseball, that's, <laughs> that's important. And now that all the cute people have left and gone to Children's Church, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's, uh, it really is an honor to be here and to, to share with you from God's word. And I'd, I'd like to ask you just to listen to these words from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5. And if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Therefore, since we are made right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God and not only that 
but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anybody die for a righteous person. Maybe for a good person, somebody might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom we have received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these words from the apostle long ago who tried to bring your children, Jew and Gentile, men and women, bond and free, male and female, into the hearing distance of your word to remind them of who they were because of what you had done for them, to remind them to be together and to love each other. And we thank you that we can also overhear these words today. Help them to enter our hearts and minds to our very fingertips so that our lives become more and more shaped by them and by our love for and imitation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us every day to live more and more as he did and as he does so that we can be with him and you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you have a seat, please? Thank you. Well, these are very powerful words that we hear from Romans chapter 5. And I know, I know many of them are familiar. We've heard them before, but like words that are familiar, sometimes it's good to listen to them again. They're very powerful words. Uh, that's tricky in our world because we live in a world of what I like to call verbal pollution. We live in a world with words everywhere. How many of you have a Twitter feed? Don't raise your hand because I'm going to shame you if you do. <laughs> but, you know, okay, there are worse crimes. Bank robbery, grand larceny, those are worse crimes. But, you know, we're in a, a wash in an ocean of words. Some of them are helpful and encouraging. Many of them are not. Uh, we live in a world where words get cheapened. Uh, this happens in politics, where people use the most precious word sometimes as a, as a route to power. It happens in business. Maybe you've read articles on business jargon. My favorite business jargon sentences is, don't bother me while I'm actioning my deliverables. That's my new sentence of the week. We'll come back to that. I think that means, leave me alone while I'm working. Why don't you just say that? Because we live in a world of jargon, of verbal pollution. And even religion can be part of this world of verbal pollution. Uh, words, sentences that mean something, that matter, can be cheapened and hollowed out and even used for bad causes. Uh, I, I know the plans I have for you in Jeremiah, which is plural, you guys, Israel. 
or uh, Jesus is my personal savior. Words that should be profound and holy and good and life-giving can become something quite different. And so it's hard, it's hard to, in our world to listen to the words and to let them penetrate our lives so that they become, as we tried to pray a minute ago, they become uh, part of who we are. We are, as our sister said a while ago, we are thirsty people and we're looking for a source of water. Paul gives it to us in this text. He gives it to us, and if maybe the next slide would show that just a little bit. There's one more slide. I don't have a lot of slides, so don't worry. But just the words he throws up at us, the, big, the biggest words we know, God, sin, love, faith, peace, reconciliation, access, suffering, tribulation, big, huge words, diamond-studded words, the sort of words that, well, it's like when you go to the, the fanciest jeweler in town and he pulls out this tray of those diamonds and rubies and gems that you only see in museums or at coronations, uh, the kinds of things you could never afford, or if you did, if could buy them, you'd be ashamed to own them because of what good they could do some other way. Those big, magnificent, diamond-studded words. Paul decided to pull out his tray and show us all of them in just one paragraph. And so we should take a look and see what he has to say with these powerful words. So, but back up just a minute. How did we get here? Romans 5 turns out to be after Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're in the middle of the book. Imagine that. How did that happen? We're in the middle of the book. So how did we get here? He writes this letter to these people in Rome. He, you say, well, he's never been to Rome. How does he know this, these people? And at the end of the book, we get the church directory for the Roman church, right? All these names of people whom he did know because people in the Roman Empire like today move around. And they go to Rome because that's where, you, that's where everything happens. Business, if you want to succeed, if you can succeed there, you can succeed anywhere. And so he knows people there, but he writes to them and he says, I want you to remember, remember who we are. And you say, well, what do you mean we, Paul? And his answer is, well, some of us are Jews and some of us are Gentiles. And that division is a long one, mostly created by the Gentiles, mostly in their oppression of Jews. But there's a division there. And what do we do about it? And then there's that word we, because Paul has taught his whole life and the apostles have taught even before him that the God of the Bible is not the God of a tribe or a group. The God of the Bible is the God of everything and everybody. And God can't be hijacked for the purposes of a single group or a single party or a single agenda. God is God. And how do people come to God well, he says, first of all, we need to acknowledge that we didn't come to God, that sin is a reality, that human and it effect, infects and affects everybody. And there's nobody, chapter 3, he says, there's nobody who hasn't sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, Paul is thinking in groups, and he's not thinking about individuals, and, you know, and he's not saying, you know, what about my two-year-old, and none of that, that's not his issue. His issue is the big groups, Jews and Gentiles. We all stand in need of God, regardless of how holy and just and good our past has been. 
We all stand in need of God, and the greatest saints are the ones who most know their dependence on God. And so he says to these folks, we, we got there, we, we see the need. How will we get there? Chapter 4, we get there by, by trust. And he says, I want to tell you about Abraham, who's the ancestor, not just a random example, but the ancestor of the Jewish people biologically and of Jews and Gentiles both spiritually. And he says, just as Abraham was justified because he trusted God, so too are we. And then we get to chapter 5, and he's going to go through Romans. I mean, we need, if you want to stay till 5 this afternoon, we can do that. But we need at least that much time. Churches never take me up on that. I, I, I don't know if you've noticed that. Usually if they do, that's the one sermon you ever preach for them. But he's, he says, well, but let's look. He's going to go in different places. He's going to talk about being saved by grace, and then he's going to respond. People say, well, does that mean I can do anything I want to? Of course not, because grace is a social word. Just like being justified is a social word. Love is a social word. It's not a word about God, the heavenly accountant, looked at my name and said, okay, it's in deficit, but I'm just going to scrub that out and write some words, and we're going to pretend it's not. It's not some kind of a God's accounting trick in the sky. It's about a relationship that I now have with God and therefore with you who also have a relationship to God. It's a social word. And all the words he throws out on his diamond-studded tray are like that. Being justified. Just verse 1 for a minute. When the preacher says a minute, he means seven or eight minutes, right? It's like when the preacher says, finally, he never really means that, you know, for my third conclusion, whatever it is. Being justified. What does that mean? The other day, I drove up, came home in Abilene. If you've, how many of you have had the mercy of being to Abilene? Who are the righteous people here? Okay, okay. The true believers. Uh, Abilene is built on this alluvial clay, the whole town, which means everything settles, every house shifts, every house moves. So we came, I came home one day, and there are these men in front of my neighbor's house, actually surrounding my neighbor's house, digging holes, a trench all the way around the house, and sticking in these hydraulic jacks and these bars, and they're, they're leveling the house because over time every house settles. And then you get cracks and the doors jam and suddenly you think you're in the living room, but actually you're in a basement you didn't know you had if you wait long enough. And you have to fix it. You have to make it right. You have to let it be level. You have to make it as it's designed to be. And that, I think, is a part at least of what Paul means when he talks about being justified. It's not just God's accounting trick. It's it's we are made righteous. We are made right. The cracks in our lives are not just papered over. They're actually repaired and fixed so that the doors don't jam anymore. And the life that we live, we live and it looks more and more every day like that of the Son of God whose life wasn't cracked and wasn't broken and didn't shift. Being justified, he says, we have been made right. That doesn't mean that everything we do is right. It doesn't mean that we are incapable of sin. Obviously, that isn't true. All I have to do is look in the mirror to know that, which I try to avoid doing. 
for lots of reasons, but, uh, but we've been made right by faith, by trust. It's the trust that, you know, if you're drowning and somebody throws you a life preserver, you don't go around saying, oh, I am so great, I grabbed the life preserver and I was rescued. Isn't that wonderful? What an accomplishment I had. No. The people who got on the boat off the Titanic didn't go around bragging about it too much. They survived. Somebody rescued them. If you're climbing rocks, my daughter, our daughter's a rock climber sometimes, which scares me half to death, right? But you, 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 you trust the person who's ahead above you who stuck the, the nut or the piton in the rock face for the rope to hang from. And you trust that person. Paul says, we trusted God to rescue us. We believed in God. We knew that God, as he will say in chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, well, there may be people against us. So what? They're going to lose, right? It's not going to be close. By faith being justified by faith. We have peace. Some ancient manuscripts, maybe your Bible has a footnote, some ancient manuscripts say we have peace and some say let us have peace. And the difference is one letter that sounds exactly like the other letter. So is it echomen or echomen? Did you notice a difference? Of course not. There's not much. Let us have peace. We have peace. Either way, either way you read it, he says, the relationship between us as God is not estranged. There is a social relationship. It is not one of enemies. It is not one of strangers. It is an intimate and whole and peaceful relationship, a sound relationship. That's just verse 1. So as I say, these are, not, these are the kinds of jewels we saw Charles and Camilla wearing a few weeks ago. If you, if you for some reason, had watch that because I, I, I remembered we'd fought a revolution and I didn't watch that but which was funny but maybe not and Paul keeps going he keeps going in this vein for the rest of the verses one and two he says we're going to boast in our relationship with God you know in his world the Greco-Roman world boasting was normal it ain't bragging if it's so, what is not just a Texas statement, it would have convinced these ancient people. Uh, you showed your resume wherever you could and whenever you could and you made sure that, and you saw status as kind of a zero sum game. If you have some, that's some I don't have and so how do I get it from you? And Paul says, okay, we're gonna boast in our relationship with God, but what's the basis of that? I didn't achieve anything. He rescued me. So what am I bragging about? That's a bit of irony. And then he goes on and it gets, it gets harder. We're going to boast in tribulation. Now you say, okay, there are some virtues I can't learn except through tribulation. How do you learn courage if there's never any danger? The answer is you can't. How do you learn fortitude if there's never any hardship? How do you learn... Uh, patience, if there's nothing to be patient about? And the answer is, of course, you can't. 
So in one sense, Paul's insight is kind of commonsensical. You have to, the only way you can grow uh, in this life is through, through some suffering. You know, I have friends who, I have, I have a friend who's an ultra marathoner. Uh, he's not insane in other ways, just that one way. And you think, how do you train to do that? Well, first of all, it helps to be a little bit crazy, but, but he's not, not at all. How do you do that? You do things to your body that it's not really quite designed to do. You suffer because of this higher goal. And that's true in the spiritual life as well. We put ourselves out there, we take risks because that's how we grow. And then Paul says, uh, even in tribulation, these are not words he's using lightly. Paul lives in an empire of 60 million, 75 million people, maybe, maybe more or less. How many of those are Christians in his lifetime? 10,000? 20,000? Probably not more than that. A tiny, tiny minority of people. Things of Dallas, Texas. Right? And so he writes to people, and, and by the way, they were not the most popular minority. Because when you're a tiny minority and you don't follow the rules and you don't behave socially the way people expect you to behave, then there, you're a, you can be a lightning rod or a scapegoat. The emperor can divert his, his frustrations onto you, as Nero does not long after this letter is written in Rome itself. So when he talks about tri tribulation, these are not just preacher words or, you know, smoke in the air. This is, this is a reality that he's facing. And he says, even now we're going to boast about this because it is in that tribulation, in that suffering, in that struggle, in that hardship, that God becomes most present to us. How do we know that? Because we serve a Lord who went to a cross on Good Friday and was humiliated because they could. And that's how we know that. And yet was raised from the dead. And then he keeps going, Paul does, and he wants to talk about that. I think today... Um, it's, it's, again, it's so hard to hear this the way they would have heard it. People say, well, it's like wearing an electric chair around your neck or something. No, it's not. That's just weird. Uh, in the first century, if you said, I serve a God who was crucified, people didn't say to you, well, that's, that's a different idea than I have. That's not how I see it. No. They said, that's... That's insane. That's crazy. What are you talking about? Maybe they said, tell me more about that because I've suffered and, you know, and I've, I've suffered too and I don't like crucifying people. Maybe they did that. But it's, it's very shocking, very strange thing to say. Well, it's actually strange today too because everything in our society is built toward not suffering too much, some of which I'm grateful for, I like indoor plumbing, right? Uh, things like that. 
but you can't do everything in that direction. And then Paul goes on and he says, he says some, a couple of remarkable things that I'd like to just point out before we leave this text. He says, uh, he says in verse 5, hope doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. What do you mean, poured into our hearts? It's a very strange expression. It's not one he uses anywhere else in his letters. What do you mean, poured into our hearts? Well, obviously it's poured as opposed to something else, right? That God's love is not put out with a little dropper, right? Or a little sippy cup, just a tiny bit at a time. It's not sprinkled on us. It's poured into us that Christ's love is so powerful, so life-changing that it becomes the very identity marker of who we are. Paul says to these people, God loves you. God loves you. Not just you. God loves the person next to you, too. Then that, that, that language is interesting because he keeps using this word we. I always tell my students, pay, pay attention to the little words and then pay attention to the big words and pay attention to the middle size words. Pay attention to everything. But pay attention to the little words. The word we. What do you mean we? You notice what he says? He says, we are justified by faith. We have obtained access. We boast. We boast. Uh, hope does not disappoint us, our hearts, while we were weak. He keeps using the, second, the first person plural, we. Who's we? Who's we, Paul? Jews, Gentiles. That must be the context. Jews and Gentiles, people with a long and glorious history with God. People with a very short and troubled history with God. People who knew all the inside jokes. People who didn't know they were jokes, just thought it was weird. Uh, people who've been Christians decades on end. People who've been Christians for minutes. We. The people I have difficulty getting along with. As you heard a while ago, I, I spent ten and a half years as an elder. It's a hard job. Not everybody's rational when they come and talk to you. In fact, there were days when I thought, is anybody rational around here except me? Has the whole world gone mad except me? Or have I gone mad? No, that can't be right. It must be the other one. Uh, it's hard. Paul says, we, we have been you and 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 you. We have been reconciled to, Christ, to God. And then he says something that I think is the most astonishing thing he says at the end of this, chap this section full of astonishing things. He makes this argument from lesser to greater. If God can intervene in our lives while we were his enemies can save us through Christ's death 
which is a very strange plan indeed. If God can do that, how much more, now that we're his friends, can he save us through Christ's life? If Christ's death is powerful, how much more powerful is his life? If we, are, we were not so distant from God that God couldn't grab us, throw us the lifeline and pull us out of the storm, stormy waters, now that we're nec right next to him, can he not do even more? And this is Paul's message to the church in Rome. Now, if God is powerful enough to do these things, surely God is powerful enough to do other things. So what does this mean to any of us? If we're not just going to be people who action our deliverables, which has got to be the worst English ever, just about it, if we're not just that kind of people, we're not just measuring and looking for the practical. I've come to hate the word practical, actually. Practical, I think, means I don't want to think any new thoughts or do anything I haven't always done, even if it no longer works. That's what practical means to a lot of people, I think. So I've come to hate the word practical. I'm not saying I'm embracing the word impractical. I'm simply saying... In Christ, not everything is obviously practical. What sort of person gives up a great career and becomes an apostle so they can beat him up every so often for his sermons, uh, which I'm confident won't happen today. Uh, we'll see. Uh, what kind of person? What kind of person does that? It's not practical. What kind of person? Jesus is 72. Jesus says to them, what? Go into a town, take the clothes on your back, don't take anything extra. Trust the people there. Well, that's not practical. That's weird. What do you mean by any of that? But Paul is saying to these folks, you're part of something very, very big, very, very beautiful, far more beautiful than the jewels on the tray or the jewels in a crown in the grandest building in the world, far more beautiful than that. You're part of a, of a, a work done by God that reaches into the lives of the smallest people in the world and the largest, that reaches to the poorest people and gives them hope, reaches to the richest people and gives them challenge and then hope, reaches into the most broken, corrupt, cruel aspects of our world and says there is still something here that can be redeemed that reaches into my heart and yours and this church and those around us and says there is something yet to be done and we don't know what that is i can't name that for you you have to name that for yourself but we serve a god who keeps on calling us to do these things we then being justified by faith, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters at the end. Because at the end, when, the, when that one says to us, Hamilton, 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 Mark, Mark, okay. Why are you here? I think the line is, I'm with the one who got here before me. 
and his name was Jesus Christ. God be thanked for his unspeakable gifts. <laughs>